The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. More than 18 months ago, we set out to document something very unique for the SiriusXM audience. The mission was simple. We wanted to record the culture behind the car. We wanted to hear from the people who loved them, raced them, designed them, sang about them, and built businesses as a result of them. Cars and culture. A straightforward mission wrapped around passion, affection, devotion, and adoption. What we've heard in the last 18 months have been unimaginable stories from people with fascinating tales to tell. If anything, our introduction to more than 80 guests, actors, CEOs, comedians, movie producers, racers, has highlighted what we thought to be true. The car world is filled with fascinating people from all walks of life. And they all have one thing in common. They care about the automobile. Throughout this journey, the stories have been rich and the personalities have been dynamic. For the next three weeks, we'll highlight several key interviews from this past year, pulling together clips from some of the best of the best. In this episode, you'll hear from Guy Berryman, bass player of Coldplay, and an ultimate car guy, Kiki Wolfkill, the mind behind the Halo franchise that was broadcast on Paramount Plus earlier this year, and Klaus Busse, the head of design for Maserati. Musician, video game developer, and car designer. It's a microcosm of the stories told on Cars and Culture each week. We hope you enjoy them as much as we enjoy reliving them. And now, my conversation with Coldplay bass player and car guy, Guy Berryman. In addition to being a founding member of one of the biggest bands in the world, Guy is an influential art director of Road Rat Magazine out of the UK. He's always up for talking about the auto industry. Now my conversation with Guy Berryman. I started off by asking him where his passion for cars originated. So I kind of really cut my teeth on on. on how cars go together when I was a teenager and then of course yeah I started collecting cars when I was probably um probably in my uh mid to late 20s that's when that's when my collection started what was the first one that you added to the collection beyond the triumph uh it was an e-type okay and the story was um um I wanted to do something in engineering and something in restoration. Um, so I ended up buying an E-Type to restore, but there was quite a long journey to get to the E-Type because what I actually attempted to do was to buy, what I really wanted to do was to buy a Supermarine Spitfire, you know, the the the, the airplane, World War II, yeah, uh, British yeah. fighter plane. Um, and a friend of mine, uh, who's now my kind of workshop manager, um, a guy called Glenn, um, he had a passion for Spitfires as well. So I was like, okay, well, let's find one. Let's find a Spitfire to restore and we'll just figure it out and we'll start doing flying lessons and we'll fly this thing. Um, turned out that was a bit too ambitious because you don't just find unrestored Spitfires sitting in barns. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and even if you, even if you did, you have to have extremely specialized knowledge and uh, engineering skills and certifications to be able to get one of these things airworthy at a huge expense. Um, You'd be more lucky to, to find them, an E-type. 
well exactly if you want and then if you want to fly one of these planes which are extraordinarily dangerous airplanes to fly especially if you've just passed your flying test (laughs) (laughs) so anyway the whole thing didn't stack up and i thought okay well let's just kind of lower our um ideas a little bit and and i ended up purchasing a uh uh, a jaguarita type in need of restoration and 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 we were off with the whole journey never thought of the spitfire again or are you still thinking about well it? actually i mean if if i really want to bore you with the story before we got to the e-type i actually did buy a tiger moth oh <laughs> um and uh and tried to restore that but again realized that i didn't have the uh the certain qualifications required to to get a, an air a, an old airplane airworthy so I actually did send that plane to someone else to restore uh, and they restored it and it's flying and, uh, you know, I sold it and it's flying uh, and it does kind of, you know, you can go and uh, take a ride in a tiger moth and uh, <laughs> my tiger moth, which I had restored. Amazing. Your interest in cars really fundamentally lies in the, in, in the engineering back to that again and the concepts behind them and all you, you have said that all of the cars that are in your collection have something significant beneath the surface. You love form following function. We're going to talk about Porsches in a minute, but form following function and how that industrial design and and by the way, whether it's clothing or cars is uh is a mantra that you really follow at all times. Is that fair? I think that's fair. What's special about car? I think why I'm particularly drawn to cars and particularly classic cars is they encapsulate so so many disciplines that I'm interested in. So I love engineering. So I'm interested in in you know I love engines and gearboxes. Um, and I love the story and the development of engines and 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 just the whole powertrain of a car. Um, I, I also feel especially with the cars that i like which are predominantly uh european sports cars from the 1960s i think broadly that describes what i like um they're like sculptures you know so i can appreciate the 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 form of the cards um you know on a on a sculptural level but then you know really when you're looking at those era era of cars the interiors the leather work the stitching I mean, there's all these disciplines rolled into one object and I'm fascinated by all of those different disciplines that have been uh, put into this kind of singular, beautiful object. And what is it about that era that draws you in? Uh, I think, uh, I, I really believe cars back then have a certain shape, a certain fluidity, which can only come when you're drawing by hand. Mm. So modern, modern day automotive design uh, leaves me a little bit cold. Um, and, and I fundamentally feel that it's, it's due to the, the tools which designers use to create shapes and to create form. I think automotive, if you think about those CAD programs, you know, you can make very complex things very quickly when you're running a CAD program, which you can't do when you're drawing something by hand. You know, a, two, a Ferrari 275 GTB could only have ever been drawn by a hand and a pencil. Mm. And so I think that's, it, it was the limitations that designers had in the 50s and 60s um, 
combined with you know the huge cultural freedom um and just sense of hope that um swept across the world you know post world war ii which allowed people to explore all of these wild ideas um so for me there was just a kind of a, a, it was a it was lots of things coming together in that era at the same time which created something greater than the sum of its parts i mean i i find mid-century design whether it be cars or uh, architecture or furniture is just something that i don't have to think about i just see it and i like it hmm. yeah cars by their very nature and the design of cars are emblematic of the generation at that time, aren't they? And and maybe it says something about where we are currently in the design of what we're seeing on the roads today. It, it it's a spirit that you just described. There was a spirit of the '60s. There was a spirit of the of the products developed in the '60s, and now you see a return to that minimalist and form and function now, right? I think so. I think we're seeing. Uh, I, I think we've got to a point where these. Uh, if we're talking about sports cars and these uh, supercars and hypercars, they became something where so many fins were, uh, and wings and bits of carbon fiber were added just for the sake of stylization. You know, they, they don't necessarily have um, a function, but it's just to do something which looks good on a website or looks good on Instagram. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting we've got to a point now where I think people are starting to see through that. And um, I had an interesting conversation with Gordon Murray, who's um, mm -hmm. cr creating some very interesting cars at the moment. And his whole mantra is, a, is about a return to beauty, to simplicity and, and, and to a fluidity and a simplicity of shape um, that's going into the cars and just removing anything which is just not needed. And that, that's something which I'd like to see happen more and more in automotive design. You have such an interesting collection. I, I want to focus on just, just a few of them. Your Bugatti Veyron. It's, it's um, certainly not a 1960s model. <laughs> and, nope. and, it, and it has one mode, which is fast. But you, you love the, the, the spirit of it, the design of it again, right? Is that what draws well, you in? I, I... That's an interesting one. Um, it's certainly rare. Because, uh, what do I want to say about the Veyron? I think it's quite a pretty car. You know, I think I think there is a simplicity to that car. And what I was really drawn to was it, just the scale of the brief uh, that was given to that car um, by Ferdinand Pieck uh, and the fact that they delivered on it um, I thought was a milestone in, in engineering. Um, honestly, I've sold the car um, because I didn't like driving it that much, <laughs> actually. Um, and what, what was it you didn't it, like it, about it? It, it, was, it was wildly powerful. Um, the road noise was quite immense in the cabin because the tires were so wide. Uh, it was it was very difficult to maneuver. Uh, I live in the countryside and the lanes are quite narrow and it's really a, it's a very big wide car. Um, 
but you know beyond the kind of engineering prowess which went into that car and you know the engine's phenomenal and the, uh, and the brief was phenomenal and, and they delivered upon it and it was a real game changer in terms of what people were doing with sports cars i felt i was quite uncomfortable i was always quite uncomfortable about heavy the car about how heavy the car was um i i do believe that cars are still too heavy sports cars are still still too heavy um but honestly the 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 killer for me was uh the cost of ownership of that car um the servicing costs average oil change tires um i feel you know i i don't know the exact numbers but i think the, the 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 project costs for um for the veyron it ended up costing the company something like 5 million euros each to produce the car. Um, and I think, the, I think the sale price at the time was, you know, like a million euros when they were new. So they were, so they lost so much money on that project. Yeah. Yeah. It was ambitious. For sure. I just, I just don't understand how on an annual basis, you know, you have to pay so much money to keep the car on the road. Um, and I have a sneaking suspicion it's some kind of <laughs> uh, it's some kind of scheme f- for them to try and get back some of the money they lost on the <laughs> you know on, on the project. Yeah. And and honestly, I just feel like I I, I don't want to. I, I didn't drive the car that much. Uh, it doesn't have a great use case, certainly for me. Um, and I, I just I didn't enjoy how much money I was burning through just owning the car. We interviewed Rob Dickinson on this show. I'm, I know you probably know him from Catherine Wheel. Uh, he is the, the well. Head. I know him from from Singer more than <laughs> exactly from Singer Vehicle Design. Yeah. Right. We interviewed him and we and I asked him, of course, what what Singer does with Porsches, and he said Porsche is the perfect vehicle to own from his perspective because you can absolutely beat the hell out of it on the track. And it'll come back for more. Or you can take it touring through the English countryside, and it's a great daily driver. You have five classic Porsches, I think, if not more. And y- your your view on, on that brand? I tend to agree. Uh, I tend to agree. Um, if you were to have one car, one classic car, uh, it would be a sensible choice because for, for all those reasons, you can you can put it on a racetrack, you can drive it down a gravel uh, rally track. Um, they're they're pretty comfortable. You can get you can get four people in them. They've got pretty good luggage space. Um, they're quite reliable if you set them up properly. They look good. Uh, we're talking about the nine eleven here. I yeah, guess. the nine eleven. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. Yeah, I, I would say if you had to have one car and you, if you were saying, okay, I'm, I'm interested in buying a classic car, but I only ever want to have one and I want to keep it forever and I want to do this, 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 and this, then you would have to steer somebody to the 911. It would be a hard, it would be a hard car to beat. Um, I, I'd say it would be closely followed for me by the E-Type, hmm. which is which is also a very usable classic car and this is my whole thing you know I, I, my collection at some point was i think over 30 cars and now it's down to probably half of that and 
it might even get smaller because I've got to the point where I don't just want to have these cars sitting in my garage, taking up space and not being used. So if there's anything, if the, if there's anything in there now, which isn't really getting used because I don't enjoy driving it or it doesn't have a use case, then I'm probably thinking about moving it on because I, I, I really do believe that we have to use these cars. Last March, I sat down with video game developer Kiki Wolfkill, who talked about growing up around motorsports as well as the rise of women in video games. The mind behind the Halo franchise is also an enormous car gal. Now, a portion of my interview with Kiki Wolfkill, who begins with a bit of her own family history. We grew up around motorsports. My father raced extensively in the 50s and 60s. Um, he has a, a storied history um, at the Macau Grand Prix. Uh, the stories about cars that he could tell and, and the cars he would acquire, you know, the Porsche 550 he bought new from Porsche and ordered um, and the price tags that used to be associated with those cars. Um, you know, we grew up, we grew up with that. We grew up with, with race car drivers friend, as friends. Our family vacations were being stuffed in the back of a 911 and driving to Road Atlanta or Lime Rock or Mid-Ohio. Um, so that was just sort of sort of the culture of our home. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I remember vividly my father running in to the house after work um, and looking out the kitchen window to watch the cop cars going by um, as he <laughs> evaded them from his, uh, again, back in the day when you could, you could do that. Um, <laughs> you know, that was, that was just how we, how we grew up. And so um, driving, I, I learned to drive very young. I've always loved it. My you were father, 13. Yeah. My father would, would take us, you know, out to the church parking lot when it was snowing and, and uh, pull up the e-brake to teach us how to drive in the snow. Uh, and so it just, it, it just sort of part of the language of, of my youth, I would say. And Kiki, your father had his own very interesting story. An ex-Marine and an NBC News cameraman in Southeast Asia awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Kennedy after surviving 15 months as a prisoner in Laos. Yeah. The rebellious spirit that carried down to you because <laughs> you started taking the track on a regular basis. And in college, you started racing. You were about 24, 25 years old. You placed second in the Sports Car Club of America Club Racing. The following year, you won the Northwest Region ITS Championship. And you've maintained the, you know, the Porsche Club things, the racing studios, things. Racing to you, what did that mean? Was it the competitive side of it that was the most attractive? Ooh. I think there's a few things that were attractive. You know, I um, I think part of it, uh, I mean, no question, I'm, I'm a competitive person. I love competition, right? Not just participating. I love the spirit of competition. I can pretty much watch anything compete. And if it's a good competition, I'm in. Um, uh, so that was definitely part of it. Uh, a, another big part of it for me, though, is, uh, A, I love driving, but I also... I'm so intrigued and drawn to, uh, to activities that sort of require mastery, right? And not that mastery is every, ever something I will get to, but I love the pursuit of it. And so with the driving and the racing, it both was a very personal challenge. Um, 
you know, I ended up doing primarily endurance racing. My brother and I did some races um, as well together uh, with Motorola Cup and um, a few other series. And what I loved is it was such a physical and mental challenge. And on top of that, there's the skill of just the, the car control and understanding the car. And then on top of that is the competition, right? And I think that a lot of the, the, the mental tenacity required to, to be a good competitor or a top competitor. And so I think all of those things really made it something that I just, I just loved. And then I will also say it requires such extreme focus that in some ways it's almost meditative for me because I, I can, I literally can only afford to think about that and what the car is doing, what I'm doing um, and clearing my head of everything else is something that's really uh, important to me. It's a release for you. Yeah. How much time do you get to race these days? Yeah. Well, in a, in a good, and cause I'm in Seattle, so we don't have a year long season. Um, but in a good season, you know, I'm, I get to get out there eight to 10 times a year. Um, I was in Budapest for most of last year, uh, shooting season one of the show. So uh, I got a few little forays out in, in Budapest, not at Hungaro Ring, but that's for a hopeful season two. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so my, my poor car um, sat fallow uh, this past summer, but, but we'll get back to it. You want like it's just, it's part of who I am, right? I, I took a break for a while because I was just so busy and I just realized that I felt like there was something of myself missing. Yeah. I want to go back to one of the, one of your more illustrious racing moments, 2002, you took part in the gumball rally race from New York to Los Angeles, seated behind the wheel of an Xbox styled mini Cooper. You finished 12th ahead of many of your fellow drivers who were in Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Porsches. It had to have been a very special moment for you. Oh, it was so much fun. Uh, it was, um, and you know, uh, funnily enough, my parents actually took part in the original Cannonball, the last one that was held in 79 with Brock Yates. Um, so I grew up with that experience as well. Wow. Uh, but the gumball was great. And, you know, what was fun about it is being, and it was when the mini had first come out, right? So it sort of had that, that phenomena, like the, the, the new Volkswagen Beetle did when it first came out, like people were just delighted at the sight of it. Um, but it also I had, enough of it actually. yeah, yeah. And I was lucky enough that um, mini got us the first one to come into the East coast for this event. Um, but really like maybe a 10th of the power of any other car in the field but kind of a sleeper because, you know, when you're out in the middle of nowhere and a cop has the choice between stopping a little silver box or stopping a red Ferrari, <laughs> 10 we out of 10. car is going to go yes, down. <laughs> yes. So it was amazing because it turned out to be um, a very stealth choice. And aside from the fact that it, it took about 10 minutes to get up to speed, um, it was because it, it wasn't even an S, it was a pure Mini Cooper. Um, so my rule was just, you just never get off the gas. I treated every gas stop like a pit stop get to the floor. Yeah. You just never stop. Cause you don't want to take the time to get back up to speed again. <laughs> well, and you know, you mentioned the beetle. I want to go back to, uh, just one other racing thing for a moment, Midtown madness, 1999, the racing game that you were a part of, and you know, the players started off with five new vehicles, <laughs> and five more were 
unlockable. And those available vehicles, one of them was a Volkswagen New Beetle, as it's known. Oh, by the way, a Ford F-350, a city bus, a Freightliner Century truck. <laughs> I love those racing games. Yeah, you know, I think there was something just about the the freedom. Like that was sort of a pillar of the game experience, right? It was all about just player freedom. And that sense of exhilaration that comes from driving how you want, wherever you want, in a city that you recognize. Um, I will tell you that the, we worked very late nights on that game, and the uh, the drive home for all of us when you're when you're playing that game night and day um, <laughs> is a little perilous. Um, but yeah, I you know it it um, it had just real enough physics, right, that you could suspend disbelief and really, again, get that personal um, sense of empowerment and freedom. Um, it was a wacky game, uh, but it was also, it. you know, I still have people coming up to me about that game. Streets of Chicago, is that where it was? Yep, we had Chicago. Um, we had a few different versions. I remember, because back in that day, um, the way you mapped a city is you basically walked the streets and took pictures um, of all of the all of the streets and storefronts, and it was about 105 degrees in the middle of uh, <laughs> Chicago summer uh, when we were when we were capturing photos for that. Women in video games are the doors open for women today in terms of video game design and 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 the industry as a whole. They are. I mean, the doors, they're, they're more open. And I think, I think a lot of the work that has gone into and so much more work to do, but I think a lot of the work that's gone into trying to get more diversity and more women into gaming over the last, um, you know, five years has been, how do we make sure that we're, we're finding women that we're sourcing candidates that, uh, women and girls understand that video games um, and not just video games, but technology is a viable path. Um, and I think that was sort of the, the thing that the getting the doors open was the first step. And I think the work that's really been happening over the last year or two is how do we make sure we're creating an environment where, where women and diverse candidates can thrive, right? It's not just get them in the door, but what we found is we could get people in the door but then we would lose them because it wasn't a culture and an environment that felt safe and inviting. And, um, and I think that's a lot of the focus of the, of the industry now is it's not just about opening the door. It's about, you know, creating, creating the home and the family and the safety um, for it to be a, a place to thrive. Well, in fact, you've said that you believe that we have more females that play games than females who develop games. Mm -hmm. and it's one of your missions to change that. So how do, how do we change that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's this virtuous cycle, right? Because the more people you have coming in and making games with diverse backgrounds, the more kind of content they're going to create that appeals, right, to a broader audience. Um, and so it's, it's, I think part of it, and, and I see this positive trend already is um, the democratization of, of both tools to make games and the ability to get your game out there means that we're actually seeing a lot more sort of indie games and smaller games that are able to take more risks on, on the kind of content that they 
um, they focus on. And I think that has really helped for audiences to see that, wow, this is the kind of game I love and the kind of game I can make. You know, for a while, it was always just these huge franchises and these huge blockbuster games that were getting all of the oxygen in the room. And, and, and now that's starting to be really different. So I think, I think players are seeing themselves reflected far more in the games that are being made. And that, again, is that virtuous cycle of it becomes a viable career choice. And the more you have those game makers um, with diverse backgrounds, the more you're going to have games that represent it. After the break, I'll continue our look back at 2022 on Cars and Culture. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep. Technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now we continue our look back at some of the most influential interviews of 2022 on Cars and Culture. Later in July, I interviewed Klaus Busse, head of design at Maserati. He talked about the introduction of the Maserati MC20, as well as one of his most prominent passions. My interview now with Maserati's head of design, Klaus Busse. We begin with the exotic Maserati MC20. Pride does not come to mind when I think about the MC20. It is, it is an endless amount of gratitude and a certain level of relief mixed with maybe satisfaction that we were able to deliver a product that I think is reviewed from people other than me or my team. People look at this objectively, viewed as something that very much fits the line of Maserati and is going to be a car that will be talked about long after I'm gone and my team are gone and will appear in Concours d'Elegances and will go into collections. And, and this is something, Jason, I cannot stretch for you and, the, and, and your listeners or viewers on YouTube, um, this kind of responsibility, because you can imagine when someone says, well, first of all, uh, you, get a, you get a chance at leading Maserati design in itself as a responsibility. But then when first there's those rumors and there's first conversations and then suddenly it becomes official that we're doing we're going back to designing a super sports car there is a moment of joy but i guarantee you jason it didn't last longer than maybe half a day because then this this weight on your shoulder way it comes in because you're realizing this is not a car for a three-year lease contract this is a car again they're going to speak about in 50 years maybe beyond that and this responsibility still sends shivers down my spine. And, and when I say, when I see the, you know, all the love and the respect we're getting from the, for the car, um, yes, there are awards, most beautiful uh, cars in many, many countries. But more importantly, the love I get directly versus uh, via social medias from the customers on Instagram, for example, that just means so much. But like I said, pride is not the word that comes to mind. It's really more of a relief and and uh, I'm so happy for my team to have able to conquer that that this big mountain you know Klaus I want to go back to something that you said a moment ago you said you're designing a future collector's car if you're designing mm -hmm. a Maserati and you have said that that in itself is a monstrosity of a responsibility on your shoulders so I, I'm assuming you sleep at night but you're probably <laughs> you're probably left awake many nights too 
Yeah, you know, Jason, it is, um, again, coming back to the power of the team. Um, I am not a dictator, a design dictator. You know, the, the reason I can actually most of the night sleep well is simply because uh, I sit down with my team and we harvest this energy and the knowledge of the team because uh, I was able to surround myself with incredible talented people in all my steps of my career. And I think that really made us strong as a team. And so what we do is, in the particular case of, of the MC20, I wouldn't say we talked more than we sketched, but there was a, there was a good balance towards the conversation that we had amongst us as a team because any Maserati, but mostly with a car like the MC20, we had to solve in our head, what do we need to do to elevate the brand? Because this is more than just a car, it's, it's a brand ambassador. And how can we do that? What is our right of existence? How, what is already happening in the supercar market? And there's plenty of product. And how can we be different? How can we be Maserati? How can we be Maserati even without a Trident on the car? So there's a lot of debate and conversation that goes in there. And, and I think, I hope you, you, my team would, would agree that my leadership style is very much about forcing them to give me their honest opinion about what they think we should do. Now, at the end of the day, it becomes my responsibility together with other leaders at Maserati to then digest this recommendation. But the, the outcome of this, this conversation then is that the car almost had designed itself in our heads. And we only have to basically put the pen to the paper and, and sketch it. Sounds a little bit easier than it was, obviously. But there's an important role in this kind of philosophical debate. You've also said that there are visual things, uh, the face that you see on the MC20 and other aspects mm -hmm. that, will be, that, that will foreshadow where Maserati goes in the future. And you also, and you said you did not want to design a car for Instagram. You didn't want to design a car that shouts, look at me and is too aggressive, but you wanted to design that visual value, something that was made it a rolling sculpture to some extent. Have you recaptured what it means to be Maserati? So I think there's, there's two points I would, I would, I would say to that. Uh, number one, why do I think visual longevity is such an important part? And it's not only because it'll go into a concourse de Legons in 30, 40 years, but if you look at where we are as a society and the role of a luxury brand, and we are a luxury brand, I think our obligation, and when I say our, I mean all luxury brands, the obligation is to deliver visual and qualitative longevity. Because I give you the opposite example. Um, luxury brands I do not have respect for are the ones that are commanding a high price, and they're probably delivering good quality in terms of product, but there's no visual longevity. In other words, you know, if you look at some fashion brands, they force you to rebuy every six months. Now that for me, you know, can be perceived as luxury because it's going to be expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not the role that we need to play in the level of being relevant and sustainable. Because I do believe that, you know, if, I, if you allow me to speak about sustainability for a moment, because it's very close to my heart and not sure. only mine, but us as a brand and as, as Stellantis, is that to be sustainably relevant, relevant, you can do two things. You can continue to buy a high quantity of product and make sure it's either recycled or it's recyclable, or you can buy less, but make sure that that one object that you buy has that longevity, qualitative and visual. And I think that's what we're doing with Maserati, with an MC20 or other Maseratis too. Point number one. Point number two I would like to make, coming back also to the rolling sculpture comment, 
is again looking at society now obviously i've lived in many societies and understand there's a different approach and understanding of car culture a big difference between um, usa and germany for example in germany there's a very critical debate about cars in general luxury cars suvs and so now I can design a car that looks like, you know, that shouts, look at me, you know, I could put add, add extra spoilers, extra air intakes, and, and a lot of edges and decorative elements. But is it the right move? Because do I really want to create this kind of attention that sometimes can be negative? Or do I create a car, and that's what we've done with an MC20, but also other products, that really only use the minimum required air intakes, that tries to avoid spoilers, that creates truly a rolling sculpture. And by doing that, adds visual value to the environment and hopefully is appreciated versus creating negative context. And the good news is from all I can hear and all I see is we have exactly accomplished that with the MC20, but also other products like the Glecale. And you spent thousands of hours in the wind tunnel in order to ensure that the downforce on the MC20 was sufficient for the vehicle without adding a spoiler. This is a, a completely new, new format to some extent, especially for Maserati. Yeah, you know what? It was very clear in the beginning that we wanted to try to, uh, to, to work without a spoiler. Number one, it's, it's visual noise. There's a, there's a space for a spoiler when you really go track and you do a track car, etc. But for a, a grand touring supercar, we wanted to remain as pure as, as possible. So we try to avoid the spoiler. As, a, as an add-on piece. And secondary, if you do a moving spoiler, which we could have done to hide it uh, while you're driving it, it adds weight and it, it compromises um, the space of your luggage compartment. So also that was not a good idea. So instead what we did, exactly what you did, uh, what you say, is to be almost real-time designing the car with the aerodynamicists in, in, in Moderna. Actually, Wind tunnel, yes, but these days is actually all artificial. The, the computer does that for us un until the final uh, check in the in the physical wind tunnel, and so we did the car real time with with aerodynamics, and that allowed us to design the car like a wing. If you if you for example, I'll give you one interesting um, interesting detail. If you look at the section of the wheel arches, normally they are very sculpted. They're peaking. They're round. On the MC20. They, they're not completely flat, but they're more flat than, 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 than round. And so even the surface of the wheel arches creates downforce by being basically a wing surface. When you think about the future and where the industry is going, it is undeniable that the electric vehicle movement is picking up speed, if you will. You drive, or at least you did drive, a Gran Cabrio with a naturally aspirated V8. And you love the sound of a morning cold start with a V8. Who doesn't, right? But you did something interesting as you started to examine how EVs would change design and change product development. You challenged yourselves with an interesting exercise. You took a video of a 1954 Pininfarina designed A6 GCS. You say the most beautiful Maserati ever, ever put together driving through the streets of Italy. You muted the engine sound and played classical music. And what came to mind when you did that? Goosebumps. It was literally goosebumps. And it was this eureka moment of the future is going to be great. And, and mind you, this exercise I did um, exactly when I arrived at Maserati because at that time, 
it was clear for us designers who live in the future that this will come. We didn't know at what speed and, and with exact every little consequence. But it wasn't done last year or two years ago. It was done seven years ago. Uh, because there was this challenge about what if, which we didn't know at that time, we would go electric. What if sound, the engine sound would go away? Electric cars still produce some sound that they have to do for legal reasons. So we did this exercise. But you know what? The interesting thing was, uh, while the video looked great with the original sound, I would argue it almost looked more emotional without the sound of the car, because suddenly you over-amplify the, the visual impact of the car. Uh, I don't want to make um, uh, advertisement, but there's a fantastic TV show um, where all characters, are, are part of, a, a, a few chosen, are blind. And, and I struggled first with, with the concept of the show, but I, once I got into it, the show did an excellent job of telling the world uh, the, through the, well, I almost said through the eyes, but through the ears of someone who's only dependent on sound. And it was fascinating. And so we did it the other way around. We basically created something that now going forward will almost exclusively depend on, on visual. So what you need to do is you need to remind yourself then in the conversations with engineering and, and packaging, et cetera, we need to make sure that we maintain this aspect of rolling sculpture, which means we need to have amazing proportion. We need to have amazing design. And I would add, if you allow me, I would add one more uh, anecdote to it. Uh, when we had the lockdowns, one of the many lockdowns here in Italy during the pandemic, streets became silent. And suddenly, when you would hear a high horsepower car, like, for example, my Gran Cabre, which I still own and will always own, announcing itself from five minutes away, <laughs> I started to ask myself, is this something that will be accepted beyond car fanatics. And, and I, I'm not so sure it will be, to be honest. And I think um, you will earn much more respect if you almost enter the scene silently. So I'm absolutely optimistic about that aspect. Wow, that's an interesting perspective, one that I have not heard. The sound of the internal combustion engine may be ostracized to some extent. You know what? Um, I, I love that cold start. I do. Um, you know, it's, it's for me, my car is is a reward. Uh, I'm not driving it on a daily basis. I usually drive it over the uh, weekend. I will do so again this weekend. Uh, and yes, when I go into my garage and I start that car, it's 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 more than just starting a car. It's like, yes, now the special part of the weekend will start and I'm going to go to the mountains or to the sea or any of the beautiful places around Torino. So it's really a uh, hedonistic, uh, rewarding um, part of driving the car. But I also admit, if I drive the car on a long distance, just two weeks ago, we were driving the car down to Saint-Tropez, we're driving some of the mountain passes of the Alpine, of the, of the Mediterranean Alps. And as you're by yourself and you're going through these amazing, beautiful natural roads, these curvy roads through nature, I were wishing at that moment that the car would be electric. And I could just um, appreciate the handling of the car, which is fascinating, and just enjoy being there, driving the convertible with the roof open, be there with the nature, driving an amazing car, which is stunning inside out, but even further mute the sound. So it already has crossed my mind that I would be one of the first customers, probably. One thing you are passionate about that I see is you follow Formula One racing quite closely. And I think you had a yes. hand in the livery of the Alfa Romeo Formula One car, correct? 
Yes, yeah, so Formula One, um, there, there's two aspects to why I'm so passionate about it. Number one, yes, during my time as head of Alfa Romeo design, we were designing deliveries for the team. And, and when you do that, you get a, a really beautiful insight into the workings of a Formula One uh, team because you meet, you, you have, you know, one of the seasons we actually had the car in the studio, of course, in a super secret locked uh, uh, location where we already taped up delivery for the next season. And, and it was just fascinating, you know, and, and it was usually my last thing uh, every day before I left the studio, going to that beautiful room, looking at this amazing machine of technology, because it's really inspiring. And, and I want to take the, maybe also create the bridge to Maserati. If you work for a brand that is born in racing, that means you cannot be sentimental about your past because you lose. There's not a single race car on the planet that will ever run a race that was designed by looking, oh, look at this beautiful race car we did 20 years ago or last season. The one thing you always have to do, and maybe that's, again, it's Italian design when we, when we speak about the fact we always do the best we can in this moment. And I would also add, um, because of that Maserati, I always see design almost secondary because number one is the performance, is how the car handles and what it, what it represents. But I would also do another shout out to um, the new ownership of, of Formula One. I think what they've done with social media, uh, allowing us to live and, and laugh and share our stories about Formula One every single day with amazing footage and stories on Instagram versus, you know, when we grew up, it was, it was Sunday every two weeks and that was it, maybe Monday morning newspaper. And then you had to wait another two weeks. Now uh, Formula One is present every single day. And I think they're doing a fantastic job also with, um, you know, the, the TV show, uh, what is it, Drive to, to Survive, survive. Mm -hmm. which, which brought my son into Formula One, which I thought was a lost cause. I thought I was truly dead to that generation that was not interested in cars. And heads off to those guys for, for raising these emotions. That's our brief look back at some of the personalities this year in Cars and Culture. Thanks for listening. You can follow Cars and Culture on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM, at Twitter at Cars and Culture SXM, and on YouTube. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road in 2023.